This episode of Sustainability Solved is brought to you in association with Business Declares, bringing business leaders together to show support for action on climate and nature. Hi and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson, the founder and CEO of the Green Element Group, incorporating Green Element, Compare Your Footprint and, of course, Sustainability Solved. We've been empowering organisations to manage their environmental impacts for a just and sustainable world since 2004. And I'm Charlie Luxton. I'm an architectural designer and I focus on sustainable buildings. This is our first podcast of 2024. Happy New Year, Charlie. Happy New Year, Will. I hope you had a good Christmas. Yeah, it was good, actually. It was very nice. It was very nice indeed. What did you get up to? Uh, family, and actually I managed to go skiing, which was good, um, and there was snow, which is good, considering the way snow in the Alps is changing, and I haven't skied for years, and I really enjoyed it, and I took my kids and tried to teach them with mixed success. An 18-year-old girl is not easy to teach to ski, a 16-year-old boy is quite easy to teach to snowboard. That's what I sort of learned. And are they up and running? Are they able to go down? They got it in the end. Awesome. And you, what did you do? I had the in-laws over. I had my other half's sister and brother-in-law and kids for three weeks and parents-in-law. Three weeks? For three weeks at home. Excellent. <laughs> Back to work. <laughs> no, if I'm honest, it was brilliant and I loved it because A, it was just busy and it just got you out of work because I just wasn't able to think about work because I had kids running around and everything, doing everything. And then we went up to the Cairngorms for the snow as well. So we got a bit of skiing in as well. Very which nice. Is nice. Excellent. So this is our first podcast of 24. We thought we'd start the year by talking about some of the big things that are coming up for sustainability in the next 12 months and also do a proper, slightly overdue welcome to you, Charlie. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny. We sort of slipped straight into doing a few very interesting conversations uh, sort of under the radar. And, and yeah, no, it's nice to, to sort of have a chat and, and actually actually talk to you also a bit more about about your journey into sustainability and and why you are where you are now i know i'm i'm actually enjoying it because we've known each other for so long and we talk at family events and we're not related but you're married to my cousin and i think you and i are the only sustainable no i can't say sustainable people but uh, people who work in sustainability <laughs> <laughs> In, in the family. <laughs> That's probably more fair. I'm not sure there are any sustainable people, if I'm totally honest, anywhere. You know, it's a sort of, I'm not sure that's, a, that's a totally, you know. I would say that everyone is a sustainable person because the pure definition of sustainability is you're not over-exceeding. And if you are <laughs> over-exceeding, then you'll die. So if you're alive, you should be sustainable. <laughs> Um, so let's ask you a bit about your involvement in sustainability. So most people know you from hosting TV shows about housing. It's not only housing, is it? No, it's, it's wider architecture in the past, and I've done sustainability stuff, and I'm doing a sort of bit of history stuff, and yeah, all kinds of things really over the years. I mean, I've been doing TV over 20 years, so you know, in that time, you cover quite a lot of stuff. It's not all about sustainability within TV, is it? But it did, has it transitioned into it or was it always at the beginning and it's just in and out? So my journey into sustainability is one that starts probably when I was about 17, 18, and I was quite interested in in um, alternative issues. Well, actually, I think if it goes right back, I grew up in Australia uh, in, until I was nine. 
And I remember this big thing kicking off about logging the virgin rainforest of northern New South Wales when I was a kid. And it kicked off a bit and it was a lot of people talking about it um, because we used to go out to the bush as kids and I really loved it. It was the most magical place in the world to wake up in the bush in Australia and the dawn chorus is just just stunning. And I, I sort of got a real connection, I think, to nature. And there was this big eye. <laughs> the loggers were like, you can't stop us logging these rain, the last of these rainforests because it's our job. <laughs> and I remember someone saying, yeah, but you'll log them for the next five years, then you won't have a job and there won't be any rainforest left. And I remember as a kid going, oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, mm. this is really stupid. And, and that's sort of like, and, and I only really thought about this a few years ago when someone, I was talking to someone else about where it came from, my interest. Fast forward to about 18 and I was quite into the alternative scene and you know, what have you, and went traveling in India. And I remember standing on a railway station and getting a dal and a chai, mm. so like a little bit of curry and a, a, a cup of tea. And the tea came in a sun-baked mud cup. And the dal came in a pressed piece of banana leaf with a little wooden thing. And everyone ate their dal and drank their tea. You had to drink the tea quite quickly because the cup <laughs> would start dissolving if you hung around too long. But, you know, it was only mud. It was fine. And then I lo looked around at what to do with this waste material. And everyone just threw it on the railway track. And a cow sort of wandered by and ate the leaf and the mud. You know, the cap just went back into the mud. And I remember just looking at it going, oh my God, you can do more mm. with less. And it was like in a kind of an epiphany moment of, I mean, I've never liked waste and, 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 and just this idea of doing more with less and less. And then went into architecture and got really involved in sustainable architecture. And then it kind of spun forward into, uh, uh, you know, that's what I was really interested in my degree. And then went and worked in Ethiopia and ecotourism for eight, nine months on a, in a bird sanctuary, trying to protect a last bit of rainforest or, or montane rainforest in the upper reaches of the Rift Valley and sort of came back and then went to do a master's right. and stumbled into television, mm. which was kind of weird. You know, I didn't want to be on TV. I was making films with a friend as a production designer. Uh, and there was a notice on the notice board at the Royal College of Art where I was doing my master's and it said, we're looking for a TV presenter. And I was like, I don't want to be on TV, but I want to see what a production company looks like. Right. So I went down for the screen test thinking, great, I'll see what a production company looks like. Hmm. went away, forgot all about it, and then got a phone call saying, right, you got the series. And I'm like, oh, no, I've got to finish my master's and do this series. And before I knew it, so this is like the 8th of January, year 2000, I was there in a Paul Smith suit outside the Jim Sterling Institute of Engineering in Leicester University, and they just gave me a piece of paper and said, right, go on then, what are you going to say? <laughs> like, um... Right, there's no tra there's no train. There's a, well, it's a bit of a script, but what are you going to say? And I just started talking, and that and that was that was it. Mm. And, and interestingly, like in those early days, did manage to get some sustainability into TV. But what I've done over twenty years is every time I try and talk about a building or a project, I try and talk about the sustainability as an underlayer to it. Mm. You know, as a, like that's a given, and and I think that's really important, certainly around architecture, is that we talk about it's like the thing needs to stand up, right? Yeah, the yeah. thing needs to keep out the rain. Uh, the thing should keep you well. Should keep you warm. The thing should be sustainable, and 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 I think that that's the way we, you know, that's the way I've tried to bring it into my television staff. Is that it's a given, and trying to furnish people with the the words and the language and the, and the mental pictures of how that can be done. Yeah, but it's a given. So let's not just say this is a sustainable building. It's like it, it's a building, and therefore it should be sustainable. And, and that's been a you know that's been a really interesting journey. And then. So that's in, in television within within my 
private practice, you know, I, I started my business 18 years ago and we were, we've been very focused on, on, on low energy architecture. And that has really moved from interestingly being sort of, you know, I remember going to sort of talks on sustainability or giving talks on sustainability and it would be in a sort of, sort of small shed somewhere. Uh, and, you know, and recently you're going to give talks on sustainability and they're in huge, huge, you know, central London yeah. Excel centers and people are, yeah, and people mm. are gen. You know, it used to be a lonely industry, yeah. as you well know. You know, you'd wander around. There weren't yeah. many of you, and now it's really taking off, yeah. and it's exciting. And the, and I think that's what gives me sort of confidence, or at least optimism. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying I'm confident we're going to have a world the same as I was born into, but it gives me real optimism that, that the pace of change is rapid. And if we decide to tackle it, truly decide to tackle it, I mm. think there's amazing things we can achieve. It's just that. Yeah. time pressure yeah. you know with with the speed of climate change with the speed of biodiversity loss you know it's it's really tight it's going to be really tight and you what are you working on at the moment you're you've just finished a show haven't you yes so i've just finished a show called um the great british Reno, Reno, <laughs> Restor, wait, the great british restoration challenge i think it's called that <laughs> the thing is this is what happens with tv is you work on something for years and you have a working title yeah mm. And so I was, in my mind, it's called Historic Homes. And so for years, it's been like going filming, it's Historic Homes, Historic Homes, da 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 And then like before it goes out, they change it. And you're like, oh, okay, I totally can't remember. Great British Restoration Challenge, it's called. And it's really nice, actually. It's about people converting structures that weren't built to be houses into houses. Oh, right. and, and this series is, is a brilliant one. A guy called, he's my new hero, a guy called Eddie Butterworth. And he restores right. shepherd huts. And he does it. Like he he we he restored the shepherd hut. The it had been on this this local estate where this guy's father had been the head woodman. He'd managed to get it off the estate because he used to play with it with his sister. The wood that they used to repair it had grown on the estate. Eddie uses a wood-fired steam engine to cut all his wood oh, that's wow. powered from the wood from the local estate. Mm. He does all his own forging. He makes everything and restores everything and reclaims everything. He's an it, it's a it's a beautiful little story. Oh, brilliant. I look forward to watching and, it. And I think what's really encouraging about, about this is when you meet people, a lot of them are really pushing the sustainability well beyond what building regs is requiring because they understand that actually a really low energy home is a better home. It's more comfortable, it's cheaper to run, and it's going to be a better investment in the long term uh, and healthier. Uh, and so it's sort of, and I suppose that's the thing that's always been slightly head scratching is, is the fact that the government's so far behind in legislation or, or has been so far behind in legislation compared to what people want to do if they're building their own homes, not what developers want to do if they're building a home for someone else and there's absolutely no incentivization for them to make the house low energy. But culturally, we've almost, we went backwards to go, I remember going to see, um, visit Laura. She lived in... This is your, your wife. Yeah, yeah, partner. Yeah. She was living with these people in quite a stately home in Salisbury, renting a room off them. And they had these very old posters in one of their downstairs rooms. And they were from the 90, early 1900s, i.e. 1905 era. And it was, turn off your lights, don't waste energy, don't burn too much oil. You know, they were all environmental posters. And I took pictures of them. And then I ended up searching for them online. And I wrote a big blog article at the time. This was about 10, 15 years ago. And it was really popular. But it just dawned on me that we were talking about this then 
there wasn't a climate change then, but people recognized, why are you wasting so much? You're wasting energy, you're wasting food, you're wasting, you're wasting all these resources. And I just find it fascinating that now we're, we're almost wanting to be driven by legislation. I just find it's bizarre that culturally we've kind of been driven by excess for so long and now we're almost reinventing the wheel. Yeah, and so and the, and the question that comes to mind is, is why? And I think it is this thing of waste. That's where it's driven from for me is, is I can't stand the idea of waste. Both my parents were brought up in the Second World War and I think there's that mindset of not wasting mm. still li- lived on in them and has gone on to some of us. And I think there never has been enough, but there's been an illusion of enough probably grown out of the 80s and 60s consumption sort of boom. But it was never there. It was an illusion. There's never been enough for everyone to have everything they want because the impact on the planet is, is too high. And that's what I really love about sustainability is doing less with more. Mm. It just, you know, it's like it's like using leftovers from a meal to make another really brilliant meal. You're like, oh, that's cool. I'm really, I'm, that was really great. I really enjoyed that. And part of that, that don't use those materials is because there wasn't enough electricity generation system for everyone to just do what they wanted at the, mm. at the time, I imagine, in 1905. And then everyone perceived that there was and there never has been. And I think that, that, that that's the transition, isn't it, is to understand that there's enough. I mean, it's such a trite phrase, but... There's enough for what we need and not for what we want. And I think yeah. that works yeah. really well. But, you know, you know, in terms of sort of optimism about where things are going and what we're doing, so the TV is one side. And then in our practice, the, the things that are working on at the moment are really exciting. We're, we're looking at a, a, a large rewilding visitor experience to try and connect people to... So it's kind of the, the idea is that, that this, you would come to a place and it would teach you the importance of nature and biodiversity from a, a window box to a regenerative landscape a regenerative farming landscape and tell you the stories and the the ways in which other ways of approaching growing in our relationship to nature can benefit both us and the environment so and that, that's a really exciting project we're looking at a, at a large academic city for this location and talking to lots of the key stakeholders around that and there's a really big sort of growing interest in that we're working on a, a deeply sustainable sort of office building for an ethical investment firm. They're, they're an amazing organization, actually, called Evenload Investment. And they, they are employee-owned completely. They're a B Corp. And they give a lot of money to, to local charities. And, and, you know, they're an amazing organization. In the, and, they, and they've been an ethical investment firm for their entire lifespan. And so we're building their new offices in... Um, in, in a set of farm buildings. But what's really interesting is that they only really work in the office about three days a week. Right. And so how do you make a sustainable building that is empty 60% of the time? It's very, very difficult. Mm. So what we've actually started working with them is creating a wider community engagement sort of process so that other people can use the building when they're not, when they're not there. So education, the local community. And they're they're really in, in, in embracing that. And so that that building, you know, we're doing a lot of embodied carbon modeling, a lot of energy modeling in that. And, and down to things like so the internal partitioning where we're we're sourcing uh toughened glass units that have come out of old buildings that would go in a skip right. and be melted down. And we're like piecing those together to make all the internal partitioning. We're reclaiming all of the external cladding and drying that and uh, planing that and using that as the internal cladding because it's end of its lifespan on the outside um so it, you know we're, and we're reusing these the whole frame and we're reusing the, the concrete slab to do that so it should be approaching 
carbon neutrality in, in construction and operation. Brilliant. Brilliant. And are you, do you find that you are being asked that more, I don't know, recently than over, you know, since 18 years you said you've been working? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, yeah. It's what was very interesting about sustainability 18 years ago is you'd start off and you'd come up with all these great ideas and some of them were brilliant and some of them were, you know, have sort of gone gone by the wayside and weren't proven to be so brilliant. But but And, and then the budget would come in and nearly all of it would get cut out. And actually about... 15 years ago, we moved out of London to the countryside and we got this little thatched cottage that we got. And um, and it was like, right, I'm going to do everything on this and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to learn about the pros and cons. So wood fibre insulation. So, for, I mean, it's not, not some of it wasn't novel. Some of it was wood pellet boilers, lots of insulation, radon protection, wood fibre, lime plaster internally, all, all these kind of things, rainwater harvesting, everything, tried everything to really go, how does it work? What is the life cycle kind of of it? How much maintenance is there? Because that is important. And, you know, having done that, it's funny, you do a project like that and suddenly at that time, you were an expert mm. and not just an expert sort of within 20 miles, nationally, you know, you'd done work yeah. that a lot of, no, very yeah. few people had really done. And, and and that seems to have been the thing that's gone on is that we then do another project. It's like, right, let's really do this. So we've done a load of carbon modeling on a community housing project in the village. We did that about five years ago. So embodied carbon, how much carbon it takes to make the things that make the building, mm. as well as the thermal modeling to understand the energy that it takes to run the building once it's built. So that, that's been the big focus is, is what's the energy consumption of the, the building when it's built. So the in-use energy. And not so much on the embodied energy. What is it, the energy it takes to make it? And having done this carbon modelling, I, you know, been up to sort of conferences in London and talked to people. It's like, oh my god, we're one of the few people outside of the very largest practices in central London to even do this stuff. And then, you know, which is extraordinary. <laughs> but do you think that's because you're willing to take a risk? Yeah, because I felt when we did up our house, I kept on coming up with different things for the builder and the architect. And even though the architect said he was, you know, he was environmental, he was basically our project manager, but it was green roofs. And that was really expensive, but that wasn't small things that, so I was going, what about hemp, um, hemp insulation? Because it's cheap. It's, I know it's a bit more expensive, but it's also longer lasting and there were other things that I had kind of read about, but they didn't want to do it. And because I was just, I'm not the expert, they are the expert. I, what I didn't want to be in a position of is putting a load of stuff into the house that then falls apart. Mm. They weren't willing to take the risk. So therefore, we went down quite a conventional route. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think, I think architects have been quite conventional because they're specifying so mm. many different things uh you know hundreds and hundreds mm. of thousands of things really if you think about it you know there's hundreds of thousands of components that go into a building and controlling the quality on those things is 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 a challenge and i think quite often people mm. just revert to norm to no. do that and it's not good enough i accept that 100 percent. it's not good enough yes and i think it's partly because we're prepared to take some risks and not these are not out with normal risks you know and we carry all the normal mm. indemnity insurance and do the due diligence 
actually, I think it is that we're willing to do the extra work that it takes to work out if something's yeah. going to function as the way you want it. Yeah. And that, that's that makes the point, sense. is that to try something new, you need to do a lot more mm. effort to work out how it's going to work and then enact it. And, and a lot of the time we've done that on my own projects. So I've used my own projects over the, over the years as test cases for things because it's mm. like I'll take the risk on myself. I don't want to take it on a client, but I'll take it on myself and then I'll roll it out. And so, for example, with our, we built our office two years ago and we worked, you know, with an old tin, you know, metal framed shed. And we reused the concrete slab by leveling screed and a bit of local repairs. We used the steel frame by just moving bits of steel around to stiffen it. Um, had to buy about four bits of steel to stiffen the frame out. We used a pre-cut timber I-beam system in, to make the house. So basically build a building inside the tin frame because those, those steel and corrugated iron frames are very highly engineered to just take the weight of the wind and the cladding. They're not designed to take load. And the mistake everyone makes is they put floors in them and then basically end up rebuilding the entire thing because they're not designed for it. We just built inside that external shell using pre-cut timber I-beams blown with wood fiber. So it's completely wooden. Um, the insulation on the floor is polystyrene, but we designed it in such a way that with as few cuts as possible and dry laid. So when the building comes to the end of its life cycle, you should be able to just lift the building off and reuse that polystyrene elsewhere because we've kept it as big sheets, you know, standard sheets as possible. Um, we put um, solar panels on the roof. We put an air source heat pump. We put in heating in the heater matrix, so the MVHR, mechanical ventilation heat recovery. So we're heating and cooling the air from a very small heat pump to, as the air comes into the building. And, and sort of in doing all of those things, you know, we brought together a whole lot of techn techniques that hadn't been done before that I was willing to test on myself. And the idea of, of it is to massively reduce waste and reduce embodied carbon. So then we, having built the building, we retrospectively tested it for its embodied carbon and it came out at about 63 tonnes for life cycle. So that's over 60 years. And we're now looking and we think that we've then, that sits in a three and a half acre plot and we're planting lots of scrubland and re wildflower and trees. And we think that over about 25 years, we'll offset that, we'll drive that carbon into the soil mm. and it will be again carbon neutral. So we tried that on ourselves and now we're rolling that out for this right. big ethical investment company. So I think there's something about <clears throat> taking risks. And if you do it for yourself, you, you sort of, you tend mm. to go a bit further yeah. and take a bit more risk. And, and and I think that's really important. And that's, I think, really been the the driver for everything we've done in Child Luxem Design. And, was you know, that building that we did, one, the Architects Journal is like the main Architects magazine, like weekly magazine journal. And we won the Small Project Sustainability Award. And it's a small project because it's below £350,000. Mm. Um, and because we've done all the carbon work and, you know, and so that's that's really interesting. You start off going, I just want to do this really well, and then you go and rent to awards, and people are like, oh my god, this is this yeah. is way beyond what most people are doing, yeah. and this is pretty exceptional. And and hopefully you, you can yeah. tell stories about Brilliant. that. Brilliant. Have you been inspired by this podcast to make your organisation more sustainable? Whether you are getting started or already on the journey, the benefits go beyond the urgent need to reduce global temperatures and protect nature. Being more sustainable will help you win new business and funding, save costs, attract and retain talent. 
Green Elements climate experts have developed one of the best software platforms out there. It's called Compare Your Footprint, and it enables you to calculate all areas of your organization to offer more accurate carbon reporting and target setting. Green Element Group's experience and friendly team can support all types and sizes of company anywhere in the world. Visit greenelement.co.uk forward slash podcasts forward slash promotion and quote podcast all in capitals for a 20% discount to get started on your environmental journey. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Sustainability Solved is brought to you by Business Declares, a not-for-profit business network of over 100 businesses working together for a sustainable future. I'm really pleased to be able to join forces with Business Declares for this podcast, as they are a cause close to my heart, and I already volunteer to them offering advice, attending group meetings, and helping set up and promote events, like the recent Q. I would encourage you to join as a member today so you can get help accelerating your action on net zero and nature targets for your business and grow your network of forward-thinking green business leaders. You can find out more information about upcoming events and how you apply to join at businessdeclares.com. And what about you? Tell me, why... why why are you why are you green element hmm. and sustainability solved and can pay your footprint what is that what is that journey so it's funny i think very similar to you a very common theme through early childhood picking up litter on wimbledon common with my gran i've got very fond and vivid memories of walking around wimbledon and abu dhabi as well actually around the beach there and i think I remember that time fondly. I then, I was reading my school reports the other day. Uh, Mum was getting rid of them all. And um, when I was about 15, I did a talk on climate change. And the school report said, I can't quote it exactly, but did a somewhat erratic, out of the blue um, talk on climate change. Interesting but strange nevertheless. And um, I think, and I had completely forgotten about that, completely. So I was clearly impassioned enough to want to do talks on climate change at that point. Because um, you don't remember, that was the late 80s. And we knew about climate change really to start off with in the late 50s, early 60s. So it had still been around for 20, 30 years at that point. So it was in the ac- academia and it was around, which is worrying that we're now 24 and we're still talking about trying to tackle climate change. And then I actually did my first degree, the thesis on how people perceive the effects they have on the environment whilst partaking in sports within the Cairngorm region. So I work in sustainability and I um, live in Scotland, which is kind of strange. That's, you know, 20 years on, I'm almost reliving my university. And that was a hospitality degree. So there's, you know, and then back in 2004, I did a, or 2003, I did a master's and set green element up in 2004. 
Um, I think partly driven by the fact that I travelled a lot in my twenties and I wanted something to do that I was actually interested in. I think I was a bit lost. I was a bit kind of I had been wine merchant. I'd been a travel agent, but I needed to get my teeth into something that actually interested me. I think, and also something you believed in. Yeah, 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 totally. Ultimately, yeah, I was never going to be someone that just did a job because I thought it was a job. I think I needed a job that I actually woke up in the morning and went, this is the right thing to be doing. This is what I want to do. And um, yeah, we are here today. And do you still do you still have that that passion? Yeah, people talk about climate anxiety a lot and I don't. Um, and I think that I remember going through climate anxiety in the early 2000s quite badly and not wanting to fly at all, not wanting to do anything, really worrying about the state of the world. And um, I think I have it less now. And I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I think more and more people are understanding the horrifying nature that we are putting our climate in and our world in. And climate anxiety is a really big thing. And I think we need to be very careful about how we talk about um, climate change to our, particularly our younger um, people because they are the ones that are going to inherit the world that we're in. And I feel like I've almost put up a barrier in front of me now where I'm not worried I don't get upset. And I think it's years and years and years. You know, when you get... Um, it's a callus, isn't it? It's like a callus or a blister. It's like yeah. years of concern. Yeah. And after a while, you just can't be as yeah. deeply, traumatically concerned. No, no. And I do wonder if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I'm still here, still fighting a fight. I personally think the way that you're trying to solve it, I'm trying to solve it, is work within the system and change it from within. And I know that there's a lot of criticism about that, but actually, you know, we're, we're finishing, uh, just finishing, about to finish up the community-led affordable housing, you know, deeply carbon neutral in construction, occupation, housing scheme in, in the village. And, and that, you know, that to me is how you make change. Yeah. Now, it's been really difficult to take five years and it's, you know, I've gone grey during the process as has most of the community people have been involved, partly because it's taken so long, not and because it's been difficult. But mm. but that to me is how you make change, really, is is by setting up light beacons mm. of good stories. And, and and I think that's what we need. We need, you know, I think for a long time, sustain, you know, and, and I stopped. So I, you know, I've talked about sustainability a lot, you know, in in, in commercial settings, in, in corporate settings and stuff to try and get people to understand. And I think about 2007, 2008, I sort of realized that we were framing that entire debate in the wrong way, that we were framing it as a no, that climate change and sustainability is is a problem. It's no, do mm. not fly, do not drive a big yeah. car, do not have meat, five, you know, mm. which is true, which is mm. right. But equally, there's there's also the the positive of don't fly, but like go slow on a train. And mm. actually, I guarantee you will have as good a time as getting on a plane and jetting off somewhere. Mm. I, I, I guarantee it. I mean, mm. we go on holiday on the train all the time and I flip and love it. Mm. It's the best thing ever. Mm. You know, eat more vegetables. If you learn how to cook them really well and you have meat once or twice a week, you mm. won't miss it and it will be better for you health-wise and the planet. Mm. So I think it's like, and I really think it's about actually 
sustainability is about yes and better in in, in many ways yeah. not always yeah. but in many many ways and actually i think that's that's the issue is going out and protesting is valid absolutely bloody valid and mm. i'm i'm very glad that someone's mm. doing it but equally i think we also need a counterpoint which is this is better like mm. this you know, these ways of living so for example sustainable low energy homes are simply better they are healthier they are more mm. comfortable they lose use less energy over sort of 10 years they are far cheaper to run you know and i think you know if they're done right and i think these are much more important messages because actually these are the messages will change yeah. our system yeah i, I yeah. suspect quicker than the other although we need the other we need we need all aspects i remember doing an audit um of an eon site um it was probably around about 2007 and i was staying with some friends of mine in brighton in a um squat basically and Cut to we the chase, man. Don't dress it up. <laughs> and I was staying. I was staying there, and they were very environmental. The people, and I ended up chatting to one of the guys, Leaf, who was quite a good friend of uh, my mate. And I'd said to him, "I'm just about to go to Eon to a site to a coal power station and have a look at the sustainability aspects of it," um, which sounds slightly ironic now, but we are what, 15 years on. So um, you've got to remember that things have changed slightly. And um, he was horrified. He was like, I was there last week. We were protesting. It was part of Greenpeace. We were protesting. I was in charge of this camp. And my girlfriend was one of the people that climbed up one of the towers. And I can't believe that you were there for environmental reasons. And... I then ended up going to the site and then talking and saying, oh, yeah, I was with some friends over the weekend. And actually, they were the people that were protesting outside and they were equally as horrified. I can't believe you're friends with these people. That's... And I was looking at them going, you are on an environmental audit. So therefore, you should be actually going, actually, we need all aspects. The only way society is going to change is you have people that are willing to take risks. You have people that are working on the inside. You have people that are willing to throw money at it. Uh, and that's part of taking risks. You need everything. I remember doing a film, actually, and flying to Denmark on a plane to Kallenborg, it's called, I think. And it's, a, it's part of sort of, it's a coal-fired power station. But it sits at the heart of this industrial symbiosis network, right? So the gypsum from the coal power fire station coal-powered fire station, always get that wrong, uh, is used to make uh, plasterboard. The hot water is used in a fish farm. And there's there's this, in, this, this, I think there's like 22 businesses that share byproducts and waste products around in this, in this model of sort of industrial ecology. And at the heart of it sits this coal-fired power station, which arguably you know is a deeply unsustainable thing and we, we need to get rid of them and i think that's true and i think the concept that we're going to get viable scrubbing in any time soon is is not is not there but actually these stories are important about what we do it's quite interesting so you know i know the start of the year trying to look at things and it's really interesting over the last six eight months there seems to be a real rise in this acceptance that Fossil fuels are going to play a role in our eco economies going forward, and and I know that's been a big was quite a big focus on twenty mm. twenty uh, COP wasn't it twenty eight mm. is it twenty eight yeah mm. COP twenty eight yeah 
Uh, and I think very cack-handedly, the guy running it tried to sort of say that, that we can't get rid of, uh, you know, hydrocarbons anytime soon. And and I'm really interested in how that has sort of bubbled up and how that is sort of twisting the conversation. You know, these things are going to be there, seemingly. Um, and I wonder what your take on that is, this kind of new understanding. I know that's the government's sort of argument about the, the big new Rosebank oil field. I think it's a load of this is gonna bollocks, be to be honest with I think that we've yeah. just come, what's lovely about um finishing a year is you can look at look, look back at the last year we used less fossil fuels last year in the UK than we've ever used before. We really are on a trajectory to um not using fossil fuels at all. So I think the government aren't what they're not doing is actually looking at the actual usage. They're not they're looking at their pockets and looking at how much money they can earn from fossil fuel companies giving them donations but that what they're not doing is actually thinking about the country and thinking about what we are actually able to use and what we can do um there's a great app that i've got on my phone called um basically it shows you the exact um carbon intensity of the grid yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I look at that. Most geeks most geeks have got yeah. it. I use it to work out where to charge my car if I don't have solar working. I like go, yeah, you, I go, oh, it's a windy day, I'll I'll charge it up. And I just it just surprises me that and this is what worries me. We've just about to go into twenty four, which is the biggest year for politics that we've ever had. And you know, we've just we've just had um um, Republic of Congo. Um, we're just about to have the Taiwanese um, election. We have Bangladesh, Brazil, India, Indonesia. You know, the list goes on. The UK yeah. may be this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The latest it's going to be. No, it doesn't. No, it the latest is January the 15th in 25. Yeah, yeah. Is but it? um, it's highly likely it's going to be this year. But the, the latest it can be is, I don't, don't ask me why. I read it, I read it recently. You have to dissolve Parliament. So it could be mm. six weeks after exactly. we could put so, it about that date. Yeah, okay. Going back to your, you know, your question about that, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what goes on in these countries from a sustainability point of view, because I do fundamentally believe that culture and people are way ahead of politicians in this space. I see. So I did believe that, but I think twenty twenty three is shot, uh, sort of slightly. I think there's been an unwinding. I think you've seen it in this country, and I think what what Rishi Sunak did was um, opportunistic and destructive and vandalistic. His sort of breaking down of the kind of compact between the the, the various political parties that we were pushing towards carbon neutrality or you know zero carbon twenty fifty, and and that was sort of like a sacred cow. And he has taken that and put that back in the political arena, which I think is yeah. so destructive, yeah. he will never know. Yeah. And I despise yeah. him for it because it was a cheap grab at some yeah. votes, basically. You'll see, you know, I think if, if Trump gets in, we've got real trouble around the sustainability side. And actually, even in Germany, you know, there is starting to be, who have traditionally been, there's been, again, there's been a, a complete understanding that this is the way it is, this is where we're going. That is starting to be challenged by some of the, pushback to to policies there so i i'm i i i worry that the right the, the right wing uh, you know the right wing press uh, is sort of gaining momentum and see and now seeing sustainability as being back on the agenda as one of the buttons to press 
and and it, and, it, and it deeply worries me for this year. And I think we'll know a lot more at the end of it about where we're going to go and whether you know we should just uh, yeah. know, keep moving north. Yeah. I do wonder. I do wonder if it's right wing or populist. I think there's a nuance. I actually think I think there's a nuance there, and I think uh, populist. I, I, I think populist. Yeah, I think that's a good. That's a very good point. Listening to political podcasts on this, you realise that actually there are very few right, really right wing people. They're very populist people that you could class as right wing. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a, it's a very interesting intersection. The majority of right wing. The majority of popular mm. populists tend to operate on the right wing, but they're not yes, actually yes. Yeah. exclusive. No, you no, know, I think it's a really good point, and it is populism. Mm. And, and, and you know, and I think I think we've got a real challenge in the media in this country, who seemingly are very happy to make broad, unsubstantiated claims with limited research about sustainability. I mean, they've been doing it for years. I mean, we, for example, in my local village, we tried to put a wind turbine up years ago before the moratorium on wind turbines. Just, just good stat. This. Ukraine has put more mm. land-based wind turbines up during the war than we have. There you go. There you go. Just says a lot about our governments. <laughs> it's like, and we've got like forty yeah. percent of the wind potential yeah. in this country. Yeah. I mean, yeah. are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Anyway, we we tried to put it up and say, look, this is a community-owned wind turbine. We can get a mortgage. We've done the MetMask. We're going to make about seventy thousand quid a year back then. Now imagine what we'd be making when it was like 12, 14 p a kilowatt. Mm. Um, and and we mm. will put the money straight into the community. And oh my God, you know, most people didn't say anything. A few people were really supportive. And there was a few hardcore people totally mm. anti it and prepared to say mm. anything. Like they never pay, they mm. just make stuff up. Literally just mm. making stuff up without any research about, they never mm. pay back the carbon that's in, you know, that's used to manufacture. It's like, no, actually that's about, eight mm. to 12 14 mm. months depending on the site so that's not true mm. you know and they would just lie and and i find yeah. that problematic you know when you're you know because ultimately i think sustainability is about being very aware of the stats and i think a lot of early sustainability stuff made very poor decisions because they didn't really they, they did it with heart and feeling not statistics mm. and numbers and and you know i think modern sustainability is absolutely yeah. driven by numbers and efficiency because yeah. yeah. that's what it's all about right doing less with more you know doing more with less sorry more with less don't get that the wrong way around that's the problem doing doing more stuff with less and 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 i so it feels very asymmetric and that's what i find challenging is that you know like when you try and get scientists during the pandemic mm. arguing against people that will just make stuff up and mm. speak from the heart it's yeah. you know scientists right. won't and and that's the challenge yeah. we've got yeah no absolutely and what are you excited about coming up in 24 ai from a sustainability point of view yeah from an architecture look i'm really focused on architecture you know that's what i do you know i i, I understand what's going on in the wider industry you know and, and I'm really, you know there's some really good stuff going on around uh, reclaiming me uh, minerals out of batteries that's really exciting you know that's an absolute key if we don't get that sorted we're in deep trouble um i'm really excited uh, uh about um about actually i'm i'm kind of excited about talking about nuclear as a different forms in different ways and short, shorter lifespan units uh, to help with the transition. I know it's a very hot topic, but I think it's a really important debate to have. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I totally buy into these vast, massive, concrete, intensive constructions, but I'm more interested in the conversation around the smaller units to see where that goes. Um, 
Within architecture, I'm really excited about the role of AI in optimization of, of buildings, both structure, servicing, thermal design, orientation, optimize, you know, mm-hmm. I understand that AI is hugely dangerous, but ultimately what I'm increasingly finding is the way that we get to low energy buildings is through more and more data and more and more, in, you know, backwards and forwards with the data. And unfortunately, that gets very expensive. There's lots of consultants backwards and forwards. Thing. You can imagine it won't be difficult for that all to be done yeah. within AI. And that, that, that really excites me. Brilliant. What about you? I think I'm excited about the elections, actually. I think I'm excited that I feel optimistic. I feel optimistic about what's going on in the US. In what way? I really don't think Trump will win. Oh, God, thanks for saying that. I really don't think he will. I, I, I'm I, actually going to bet on Trump winning. Yeah. Right? I'm going to bet on Trump winning because if he does win, it will be like, oh, God, the world's trashed. But mm. at least I got a few hundred quid. Mm. Yeah. And if he loses, it'll be like, I lost a hundred quid, but who cares? <laughs> I think we underestimate Joe Biden. I think that, I think people do say he's too old, but yes, I can actually understand why um, the Democrats are keeping him on because I think he's got a very good underlying support from the country. I think he's pushed through that bill that he pushed through that was the most and really in inverted commas because people are listening to this on um, in audio, but in inverted commas, the most environmental or unenvironmental bill. It was a bill that was called, I can't remember what it the was called. The anti-inflation. Yeah, I, and the first parts of it were so not about sustainability, but very much within it was all about the environment and everyone voted on it and it has massively changed the US. The US as a country has changed big in the last year and a half um, from an environmental point of view. So I think that shift is happening. I think that we are caught up in our media suck and our media want to tell us that Trump's going to win because it sells things. I remember talking to a friend of mine um, when I first got into this. She was a reporter, bless her, for the police news. So she wasn't um, a big um, journalist. But um, I got quite drunk and had a massive rant at her about why wind turbines weren't a part of our landscape and a part of our um, energy grid. I blamed the media. This is back in the early 2000s. And she was like, all right. And I went, it's because you as a journalist go, wind turbines don't work. Wind turbines are noisy. Wind turbines kill birds. Wind turbines. And everyone thinks, I'm not sure if that's true. I'll buy that paper because I want to read it. And so you are forming a rhetoric. And it was the start of populist media, I think. And so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly, you know, that's exactly, you know, anyway... That, I was going to say that's yes. exactly what happened with Brexit, isn't it? People would say you can't sell mm. bent bananas, and, and and Boris Johnson has admitted he just yeah. made stuff up to throw yeah. stones through windows. Yeah. You know, he just made stuff up yeah. because it would sell papers, and and that's what we've got. To, I think that is the biggest challenge we've got. Actually, is is the media and its lack of long term commitment to the yeah. quality of our and society. So, from that point of view, you've got a lot of contact with the media. Do you think there's less fact checking now, and it's just a race to get a clickable headline out? What I would say is that I think that there, as as I just said, I think that there is a huge issue with the media having a lack of investment in the long term success of our society in the yeah. widest possible terms, and 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 I think, you know, I think having a multinational media is problematic because the the focus moves and country mm. they move countries, 
I mean, Murdoch, to be a classic example, moved from Australia to England to America effectively, doesn't seem to mind what, what trail of destruction they leave behind them. And, and that really bothers me um, deeply, actually. Um, and, and I think the media is actually core to, to doing. I mean, politically, though, you talk about politically, I, I am fascinated to see what Labour do going into the election and how how gingerly they will tread. And I, I kind of understand why they're treading gingerly, but it also fills yeah. me with worry that, 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 you know, surely there's an open goal. And it's fascinating. You know, they had this 28 billion fund, green fund, which compared to the American 365 billion, right. I think, mm. that, that Anti-Inflation Act is about 365 right. billion. And they're talking about investing 28 billion pounds, dollar pounds. Figures might mm. be wrong, but it's that sort of magnitude. And they and they and actually they had independent government. Did you see that independent government report about the investment required per annum to transition towards carbon neutrality? And they said it would be about mm. twenty eight yeah. billion that the government needed to put into it. But it would come yeah. back in yeah. in yeah. savings, yeah. and you know it's not know. That, you know it's, it all comes back. And Labour had basically the same figure. I don't know why coincidence or not. I don't know. But now they're they're questioning that. I, I really really hope that Keir Starmer and his team have the guts to understand that this needs to happen yeah. and it's it, it needs to happen and it, it will be better for everybody. Yeah. Well, you've had Chris Gidmore, Alex Sharma and other Tory MPs now stepping down because they can't stand what the Tories are doing. So yeah, that should hopefully help Keir Starmer understand that there is a sentiment out there. And I find it interesting that it's the people that know it's the people that suddenly have an opinion and were willing to put their actual lives on the line are the people that understand the facts. They go, I've now learned enough to realise well, I can't keep on being a politician under a government that don't give a monkeys. Yeah, yeah. Well, the problem is you're just hollowing out all, all of the, all of the, you know, centrist mm. uh, conservatives have have left, yeah. which is a problem yeah. actually going forward. But uh, anyway, I'm not sure we can solve that. No, but uh, you know, I think the bottom line is. Like you, I am slightly dulled to the challenge of sustainability over mm. 20 odd years. Not, you know, I see it, but I can't be as yeah. petrified as I used to be. And maybe mm. that's age and what have you. But I'm also I'm sort of optimistic about the things that are going on within our industry, within the architecture and construction industry. Elements of it are really exciting. And, and, and I can't wait to, to get stuck in this year and, and push the agenda further. That's it for this episode of Sustainability Solved. Next month, we're going to be talking to Ian Pritchett of Greencore Homes. They are a developer company trying to disrupt the way in which new housing is provided in this country. And we're going to be talking to him specifically about planning and its role in sustainable transition. So if you're trying to be more sustainable this year, you can help others to learn about green issues and increase the visibility of this podcast by leaving a quick review in your podcast app. If you're in Apple Podcasts, for example, scroll down to the bottom of the main podcast screen and click on Leave a Review. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Richardson. And I'm Charlie Luxton. <laughs>